This is the 966, episode 99. Mr. Richard Wilson, hello. How are you doing? Like Once again, we left laughter on the cutting room floor because we're, we're just chatting away prior. And then at some point, one of us has to go, we got to start recording. Yeah. Yes, um, we did just leave some on the cutting room floor and we're not <laughs> editing that in either. That's no. just uh, <laughs> lost forever. How's everything going? Great. Uh, number 99, exciting. Um, also happy to get past all this rain. And I think we, we have a, we have a, we have a uh, boys outing tomorrow. We do. We have the uh, scheduled anyway. If, if, you know, family and everything else will allow, we have a boys outing tomorrow. Yes. Uh, weather permitting and many other variables permitting. We have the 966 official and inaugural golf outing <laughs> just in between and, the 99th and 100th episode, Richard. Looking forward to it. 100%. And in anticipation of a golf outing, <laughs> I, was, I went to Costco recently and got the 24 pack of their dollar balls. So, I, you know, oh, I thought so you were going to say 24 I, pack of something else. Dang, no, no, 20, 24 pack. <laughs> I can get that too. <laughs> I got to drive home. <laughs> I'm 24 pack of golf balls. So I am well prepared. Whatever, um, you know, that, uh, you know, that course will throw it. Well, it doesn't matter what course it is. I'm well prepared for my golf game. <laughs> Those are quality balls. The K-SIG Performance Plus, I believe they're called. <laughs> they're, they're a very quality ball, con- uh, compete with Titleist. Unfortunately, <laughs> it is a course in which it is very easy to lose a lot of balls. With so a lot is, of water, so, well, yeah. well, let me know. It's 24. <laughs> 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 You've never seen me play. I'm wondering now, 24 is enough. I'm wondering now. We're playing nine or (laughs) eighteen. I'm. uh, Look, I'm sure they have. uh, We'll be able to find some balls. Maybe. I mean, if we're losing some, others are as well. So no, no, no. We 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 haven't played before. I'm rather prolific in that regard. Well, we'll decide what we share with the thousands of listeners and viewers. <laughs> Hopefully it's just compliments for each other at the end of it, but it will be fun, a good team building exercise. And Richard, uh, we have just a really good episode coming up for number 99. We have Princess Michelle bin Saud al-Shahlin joining us shortly, uh, uh, co-founder of Aeon Collective. Just a really great conversation about sustainability and the work she's been doing as well. Just fantastic. It was really insightful, and and it's it, it was fun to have her on because it, she's into things, and she gave a real perspective on how Saudi Arabia looks at all this and how they're going about it. Really, really good conversation, and she's a treat. One of those edifying conversations, Richard, where we just sort of enjoy being around somebody who knows so much about what they're doing and just and we, soak it up. Yeah. And we know so little. So, I and mean, our learning curve yeah. is straight up. <laughs> Richard, this conversation, I'm sorry, this oh. comment this week from at earthwiz99, I think it was a comment on your video about the part two Israel, Palestine, USA discussion, normalization, quote, good faith negotiations. When have the USA ever been guilty of that? Just ask their First Nations people. I highlighted this comment, Richard, because we get a lot like them and we enjoy comments like this um, because we enjoy people taking part of the discussion and they also make kind of a point. So interesting. You know, what's interesting about that comment is that he's probably talking about uh, the negotiations over the years between Israel and Palestine, brokered in many, many times by the U.S., um, where there are real questions about, you know, if a equitable solution can be achieved with the U.S. as the, you know, mediator there. The difference between that, Israel, you know, Israel and Palestine and Israel and Saudi Arabia is the, 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 the 
power relationship between the two partners is completely different. Saudi Arabia happily, gladly, and can walk away at any point. Mm-hmm. It owes nothing to Israel. You know, you know, it's not occupied. I mean, so that so the the power dynamic, it almost doesn't matter if it's good faith. You know, in, in a Palestinian Israeli Israeli negotiation with the U.S. as the arbiter, uh, Palestinians are the you know, are, are, you know, you know, a don't have the same influence or ability to influence the negotiations that Saudi Arabia does. So I, I'm not disagreeing with with that poster or that commenter, but, you know, a, a, an Israel-Saudi uh, U.S. negotiation uh, would be entirely different. Interestingly enough, the Palestinians, you know, may not be at the table. We've talked about that. And actually, it's one of our yellows coming up. But um, so it, that's a good comment. I like that. Yeah. Another one. We have to say it from Trimex. He is a commenter who just stands out above the others and how much he knows his stuff. So I'd like to share another one this week. He says, quote, for as long as there will be strong macroeconomic headwinds, mainly in the form of interest rates, there, there, meaning lucid, uh, their sales position will be difficult. They can definitely break into that luxury market that is currently dominated by Lexus, Audi, Mercedes, BMW, etc., and they can make their position felt there. Their cars are solid in design. They have cash. All they need are more attractive price points for a larger segment of the luxury car space. I think that's true. The way that I came down on it was that they not only needed to drop their price just a little bit, but also they definitely needed to be head and shoulders above the Tesla models on the market. So he added, if I remember correctly, they had set out a target of 15,000 cars in 2022, but they only made about 7,180 in 2022. So we mean Richard, good commenter. So a 40% increase in production rate is substantial. So Trimax, thank you. We are officially elevating Trimax, Richard, I think, executive decision. We haven't talked about this, but we're, we're going to elevate his status from frequent commenter to commenting advisor extraordinaire. Well, and just whatever the next level up is, it was a good one big thing on your part. And, you know, since Lucid won't come on, maybe Yet. we should have Trimax yes. yeah. come on. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, in lieu of Lucid. Now, you know, here today on the 966 representing Lucid, Trimax. We've only done 99 episodes, Richard. There's plenty more game to be played. I believe yes. they will be coming on at some point in the future. And as well as Sear, the other PIF owned yes, EV company. Cool so we're working in those directions. A um, um, lot of interest in coming on the show. Only one episode a week, and that won't change for a little while, Richard. So we're good there. One more, Richard, from Saja Kamal One. Sa- Sami Kamal One. You guys are awesome. Keep up the great work. Please put out a video on the Lucid Sapphire. Okay, we're going to. We're going to hold out some love from Lucid until future episodes when they come on the show. But um, thank you for the comment. You know, if we got media credentials, could we go get a test drive in a Sapphire? Can't we just do that anyway and put a body cam on our chest? And well, just I know, but it? I mean, in order to get into one, I don't know, maybe you have to, you know, provide your your net worth or whatever. I, I don't know, like they have showrooms, but I don't know if you can do test drives, but maybe if we're, you know, you know, if we can, you know, do the media angle anyway, it's something to consider. Yeah. Someone from Lucid is watching or listening, so it's going to work itself out. <laughs> we are going to hold out until we get our free Lucids as a lease that we just get to keep. And we will talk about it all that we can talk about it. Just like golf, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm willing, I'm willing. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not a one way thing. If they, you know, give us free Lucids, I'm willing to retrofit my house to be able to power from home, you know? 
right if they will finance that operation so i just want i just want to know i you know i'm an equal partner in this they give yes. me a free car i will put in you know the ability to charge it at the house yeah we're not looking for any free rides here no, we're just exactly. looking for a free ride <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is i don't have a garage maybe if they gave me a loose and, and built a garage i could properly house it but again i would cover the charging aspect of it so you're getting greedy and that'll show up on their third quarter financial report, which we'll talk about in a few months. And there'll be a little line item that says no, built garage. Know, this is this is not greedy. This is practical. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get going. All right. That was fun. Uh, what's yeah. Richard, what's your one big thing this week? Uh, we were talking earlier. We wanted to do this shorter, but I, I wanted to two two data points brought me back to the line. The line in neon, and uh, you know, I, I wanted to focus really. There's been a lot of ink spilled on the line and this and that, but I want to focus again on the audacity of the line being built in neon. As everybody knows, you know, neon is five hundred billion dollar futuristic megacity, or depending on your mood, you know, a fantastical white elephant boondoggle being built in northwestern Saudi Arabia. So neon itself encompasses ten thousand square miles, and a, a, which is an area larger than Kuwait or Israel and roughly the size of Massachusetts. And by the way, Lucian, you may have noticed that a lot of the comparisons to Saudi Giga projects regularly come in the form of states or countries. Um, <laughs> the Red Sea project on close to 11,000 square miles you know, of land and water is larger than West Virginia and just shy of the size of, of, of Belgium. I think it, John Pagano you know, mentioned that in a recent uh, article that we cited in Seustic Review. So the line, and you know, a few more mind-boggling numbers. The two structures projected to be 105 miles long, which is just a bit longer than the drive from New York City to Philadelphia, over 1,600 feet high and about 650 feet apart, intended to house 9 million people on a 13-square-mile footprint. And for comparison, the London, the footprint, acreage foot mile, you know, acreage, you know, footprint for London is roughly 386 square miles. So 13 square miles London's 386 square miles. But the numbers are not the focus here, really. Even, but I had to put them out there because I think people don't get past that. They don't get past the 500 billion and they don't get past some of the, 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 the sort of the preposterous nature of all of this. I wanted to bring attention to these two data points. First, if you have not, I encourage you to see the Discovery, Channel, Discovery Channel's video entitled The Line, Saudi Arabia, City of the Future, and Neom. Um, it came out last month. It's 45 minutes long. I recommend it, if only to see things like a graphical representation of what Manhattan would look like if we were built in a line. <laughs> um, but actually, I liked it because uh, it shot through with commentary from the numerous architects and urban designers who were or are involved in the conceptualization of the project. And it's interesting where they start, you know, sort of basic premise, you know, is that cities are our largest and most complex social constructs. This is a comment from one of the architects. I would argue that moving into the 21st century, they represent our most compelling problems. So all of these people are urban designers, architects, trying to figure out how to, how to deal with a modern city. They all admitted to skepticism about the project, and they all seem to be now at a point where they see it as a genuine opportunity to change, potentially, the way much of the world lives and organizes their daily lives. So, so if if you haven't seen the video, it's 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 worth the watch. Um, 
second second data point. There's a major exp- exhibition ongoing in Venice right now entitled Zero Gravity Urbanism, Principles for a New Livability. This is from May 20th to September, September 24th. The exhibit really focuses on the line. It features the proposals of the leading architects who have worked on the line. And this is where I started with this one big thing. What is zero gravity urbanism? Um, and it's important to understand because it, it, it drives the line, the whole design concept of the line. Um, so in keeping with the sort of futuristic theme of this one big thing, I turned to Google's AI tool, BARD, and ask what is zero gravity urbanism? I'm just, it was pretty good. By the way, do you use, I, I find BARD is actually more useful than the chat GP, uh, GPT. Um, um, I, I am BARD. Are you? This is, this is, uh, Lucian is fake. And this is just BARD's <laughs> bot talking to you. Have no, you I found use it? it? I use it. It's, it's fantastic. It's, it's yeah, really I, good. I find it, but I, anyway, I, I find it definitely, you mm-hmm. know, gets closer to the mark than chat GPT. But yep. anyway, so this is what BARD said. And I'm going to share it with you because this is driving the conversation for Saudi Arabia on the line. Zero gravity urbanism is a proposal for a new approach to urban planning that uses advanced technologies, innovative materials, and unconventional design strategies to address global sustainability sustainability issues. The model aims to balance nature, human well-being, and sustainable progress. It is notable for, one, verticality. Zero-gravity cities are designed to be tall and slender with multiple layers of mixed-use development. This reduces the amount of land needed for urban development and also helps to create a more compact and walkable city. Two, connectivity. Zero-gravity cities are designed to be highly interconnected with a variety of transportation options available. Um, This includes high-speed rail, automated vehicles, and pedestrian and bicycle paths. Three, sustainability. Zero-gravity cities are designed to be sustainable with a focus on renewable energy, energy efficiency, and water conservation. They also incorporate green spaces and other features that help to improve air quality and reduce the urban heat island effect. Still, this is BARD. Um, The world's first zero-gravity city is currently being built in Saudi Arabia's Neom region. The the city called the line is designed to be a car-free city with a population of 9 million people. All right, we covered that. And this is the closing note on the BARD uh, search. Zero-gravity urbanism is still in its early stages, but it has the potential to revolutionize the way we think about cities. By creating more sustainable, livable, and equitable cities, zero-gravity urbanism can help us to address some of the most pressing challenges of our time, such as climate change and urban sprawl. Okay, wrapping up. I was drawn to the one big thing because of the Discovery Channel. And, and this came out last month, but it's sort of been sitting there and I've looked at it a couple of times. And also then, you know, the Venice exhibition is ongoing. Um, if you get to see the video, please do. If you're in Venice, please visit the exhibit. Mostly, though, I, I just think it's important to recognize the scale of what Saudi Arabia is trying to, Saudi Arabia is trying to do on numerous fronts. I mean, you've heard me, Lucian, I, you know, I've described their giga projects or things they're doing socially. So economically associated as big swings, you know, this is a big swing. And, and for those who don't know what that means, it's a reference to, a, it's a baseball reference to a, a hitter who's trying to hit a home run. So they take a big swing. And so sometimes, as we know, you hit it out of the park. Sometimes you, you whiff, you strike out. The line is a huge swing. 
I mean, it's 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 a multi-billion-dollar concept. I mean, commitment and investment in a concept, a concept. And some people think it's folly. Others think it's visionary. It could end up being both. It could end up being neither, or it could end up being either. Uh, but what I admire is actually what comes through in that Discovery Channel documentary is that it's attempting something that's never been done before. If successful, it would transform our understanding of what constitutes positive, healthy urban design. And, and why it matters, you know, in 2023 is, it, you know, our world is currently undergoing the largest wave of urban growth in history. It's projected that 68% of the globe's population will live in an urban area by 2050. And actually, the, the, in terms of in, in, in developing countries, the percentage is higher than that. So uh, this is really kind of a noble experiment. You know, this is someone in a country, and this is in particular driven by Mohammed bin Salman, saying, All right, we're going to take a bet to see if we can change the world. And I know it opens them up for broadsides, legitimately so, real questioning. But again, this is a big swing that I think is, as I said, a noble experiment. And it's just fascinating to watch. Good, good one, Richard. We did a the last time we talked about the line, and it's good to just keep keep it going because it's sort of the big thing. <laughs> You're one big thing this week, the one big thing every week until people are moving in there, and it's going to happen. We talked about this in early July because there was a slew of little news items with updates and progress and the discovery channel piece had just come out. And so what we'll do here is we'll drop into at least the B roll here with uh, subtitles, the comments from the crown prince, which are available online and are, they just show you what he, how, how um, enthusiastic he is about this and how convinced he is that this is worth the shot. Like you said, and that it's time to think differently about how we build cities because the current blueprint is not acceptable. And that means that a city is going to be built and is being built now that is different looking and therefore easy to criticize for those on the outside. And he's looking at this as, well, we need to do something. We can't just keep building the same type of city over and over again. And we have to be innovative and forward thinking. This is a, a city not for today or tomorrow, but for the next few centuries, how are we going to adapt to climate change? How are we going to live in a way that makes people more part of, of a community that makes sense, that cuts down commuting time, that lets people work where they live and live where they work and enjoy life? And I've said that, I, th I think on that segment as well and on this show before, but when you go to the line exhibit in Riyadh and you see it, you're for some reason, it just all makes sense. And it kind of sounds like maybe that's a little ridiculous to go to a display of the city and then it makes sense. But you're you're there and you see it as not only is this possible, this would be cool. This would be fun and awesome to live in. And I'm not sure if it's going to be really expensive or when it's going to be done, but it looks like a cool way to live one's life. So just and it's happening in Saudi Arabia, which well, is crazy. And you that's those that's a great point. And it's a nice I, you know, it's intended sort of to be a compliment in that because I wanted to, again, I started out, let's look at zero gravity urbanism. And what is it? And that's the thing that's so fascinating to me. All right, so this is a new relative, it, it's a school of thought. 
it's, you know, it's, it's fairly recent. Um, but it's, it's not as if it's beta tested or, Hey, let's do a little, let's do a, let's try and do a, you know, demonstration project. No, we're going to take the school of thought and we're going to apply it to this, you know, multi-billion dollar development out in the, you know, on, on essentially, you know, un, un, undeveloped land. It's, it's, it's got so many big swings coming together and I just think it's fascinating. And if it works, it will change a lot about how the world thinks about what works in terms of, you know, how we house, you know, the, you know, enormous populations. Imagine being an architect looking, I really wish that I had chosen the path of architecture because I feel like that would be a cool career. And looking at this project would stir up emotions and a whole lifetime of education of thought about what is being built. But all the coolest stuff in history has been thought in the moment contemporarily as impossible or stupid or weird looking or way too innovative. And you could just go down the list of the tallest buildings, the um, Panama Canal, I mean, the Eiffel Tower. I mean, like a lot of these things that were built at the time were almost ridiculed or or thought to be unachievable and they pushed the envelope forward and then the next thing and the next thing and this is going to be something that regardless of how much of it they deliver how long the line ends up being will still contribute to the front line of architecture and thinking and we had saudi arabia's uh one of saudi arabia's leading architects on the program richard almost a year ago ish mm -hmm. now day al dawan and uh, from the Saudi Center for Urban Design and Planning, I believe, was uh, her organization. And maybe it's time to, to have her come back and talk it a little bit be. about the line because it just, you know, it's one of those things where I'm I'm excited about it because it's cool to see come online and it they are building it. And that's one of the interesting things in that documentary. It sort of it compared it to the Apollo space program, NASA's, in terms of uh, a coming together of of uh, vision, funding, and commitment to making it happen. And, and I th again, you, you know, the, you can take, listening to the documentary, fine. People will have criticisms of it, this and that. Um, but, you know, what comes through is these designers going, holy crap. This is, you know, the, the, the evolution of their thinking. This is crazy. Oh, man, this is neat. Wow, I really want to be part of this. And, and I think that's the, the sort of the trajectory and the curve a lot of people have taken um, if they're involved with it. And, you know, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But it's clear that people are going, this is worth a shot. And it's such a unique situation. You've got a, you know, you've got a really motivated de facto head of state and <clears throat> in a country that's trying to transform itself with funding available. And it's decided to do this. Yeah. It could have done anything. Could do a lot of things. Could be put this money in the bank. Um, but it's you know it's doing this, and wow, I, and we get a front row seat. I mean, Saudi Arabia has always been interesting to me <clears throat> and to us. But from the get go, when I first went out there, when I first paid attention to the Gulf, it's been interesting. Boy, it just keeps getting more interesting. That couldn't be a better segue to my one big thing, <laughs> Mr. Wilson. Uh, just to add to that, one last comment because this is such a cool topic and it, we could have just merged it into one 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 big thing but 
they also, in addition, could have, instead of taking the money and putting it in the bank, they also could have built a city that just looks like any other city yeah. or another copy of Dubai or Hong Kong or another city. And they were like, mm, yeah, but I mean, 30 years from now, if somebody's thinking about moving here and they finish the line, who wouldn't choose to live in the line on the water at the marina? And you got this, it's a forward thinking city. It'd be, I, I could see a situation in which this would become oversubscribed and one of the cooler places on earth. And we will look back in the moment and say, there were a lot of naysayers about this. Uh, I hope that's it looks a result. Cool. I hope yeah. that's a result. Yeah. My one big thing this week, Barbie. Yes. <laughs> <Ever a> transition. <laughs> um, we should have worn pink. Why aren't we in pink today? Um, I don't, I have some pink. I don't have a lot I of pink know. actually. Yeah. We should have worn pink for this yeah. Barbie. <laughs> Barbie <laughs> is now available to theater goers in Saudi Arabia. And as Arab news, the leading local English language news outlet in the kingdom noted this week, Barbie fever has gripped the kingdom with the outlet reporting that quote, people have been rushing to cinemas here to see it. Barbie, of course, is the movie starring one of my favorite actresses, Richard, the enormous, enormously talented and incredibly easy to look at. Margot Robbie, which Ryan is already Gosling. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, no, Margot Robbie. Robbie, I think it's Robbie. Um, it'll be Robbie to me. Um, yeah, which, exactly. has, which has already grossed one billion dollars at the U.S. box office. The film is also controversial for some. My one big thing is not the film itself, but the moment we are in right now in history. And you just alluded to that in your one big thing. Until a few years ago, you couldn't see any movie or film in public in Saudi Arabia. But now you have Vision 2030, social and economic reforms have not only revitalized cinemas and the business of cinema, but helped to seed a new local film industry in Saudi Arabia. They've also continued to expand the potential content sources for Saudis and other moviegoers in the kingdom. And as I was researching this, and, and really over the last few days, I have this question in my head that is, if this film came out, when Saudi Arabia was just opening up its theaters for the first time in decades a few years ago, would it would it have been allowed? And would it have been as well received as it has been now? I mean, Arab News said that people in Saudi Arabia are rushing to see it. It's interesting, the timing of this film, which has co caused controversy here in the United States and really around the world. What's interesting also is that while the de debut of the film in Saudi Arabia was scheduled to be before the United States and then was slightly delayed, the kingdom nevertheless still permitted its showing, having just reallowed cinemas again just a few years ago. That is not the case in neighboring Kuwait, which has banned the film, and Lebanon Lebanon's culture minister has called for it to not be allowed either. Again, this is not about the movie itself, but really what it says about the status of film and also culture in Saudi Arabia. It should be said that there are differing opinions on the film in Saudi Arabia, and both the Arab News article I mentioned and another one in the New York Times highlights differing opinions in Saudi Arabia about the film, and there are opinions across the spectrum. That's interesting, and frankly, as an outside observer, and we are outside observers, healthy, strikes me as healthy. As our guest on last week's episode of the 966, Batter El Safe, who was quoted in that New York Times article I just mentioned, said, quote, banning the movie Barbie fits into a larger tilt to the right that's increasingly felt in Kuwait, he said. And then again, he made that comment to the New York Times right after um, we spoke with him last week. Saudi Arabia has debuted the film and there is open debate about its merits in the media and really on social media is where you're seeing a lot of the commentary. Again, this is not about what I think because it couldn't be more irrelevant as an outside observer, 
who also hasn't seen the film, it should be noted. But what is noteworthy to me is the situation in general. It's that this is sort of a clear moment in time where one can kind of look around and say, wow, things are definitely different in Saudi Arabia now. You have theaters, you got Barbie, you have women driving to go see it, wearing pink. Then you also have an open and civil debate about its merits. So that's noteworthy to me too, that Saudis are sort of having a conversation among themselves and in the media, sharing what they think about the film. My one big thing a few weeks ago was about Saudi women and all the changes happening in the kingdom for women, basically how cool it was that they're achieving so much and experiencing the opportunities presented by Saudi Arabia's general progress in harnessing the power of its women. And it's just an amazing moment that we're in right now, Richard, and an interesting thing happening right now. It's pretty cool. And that's uh, my one big thing, by the way. Was <laughs> on mute. The, the curtain comes down and a clap comes. <laughs> Um, good one. And, and, uh, I think that was well formulated and it, it actually fits our one big things fit in, in terms of, um, the big swing, you know, Saudi Arabia and, but I'll refer to butter. I'll safe and butter. I'll safe, puts his finger on something that's really interesting in terms of what Saudi Arabia is trying to do. So what's Saudi Arabia trying to do It's trying to, to, to liberalize socially to an extent um, we've seen this in other authoritarian states where the liberalization is coming from top down. Um, extraordinarily close pretension is paid, I'm sure, from decision makers. You know, they're tracking, they're tracking social media, they're tracking attitudes, trends, this sort of thing. And they're trying to understand what the load will bear in essence. Um, and so uh, as Saudi Arabia tries to make the society more enjoyable for its youth and for its population, you can do more things, you can, you can be more active, you can obviously there's employment opportunities. So, you know, we're trying to engage the population in a, in a, in a at so many more entertainment options and trying to engage the population, but what's the limit? And the Barbie thing is really interesting to me. And I'll say this because let's remember, you know, Lightyear, you know, Buzz Lightyear, that, that was banned in Saudi Arabia. The Immortals were banned in Saudi Arabia. The the recent Spider-Man multiverse was banned in Saudi Arabia. Uh, you couldn't see that. Barbie was. So it's I think it's I think each of these decisions is made within the context of what the load will bear. And what Butter was referring to was really interesting because a couple the Arab 15th Arab Youth Survey came out recently. You know, a comprehensive wide you know, Arab world survey of youth, and it confirms sort of what the Arab barometer, another well-respected recurring uh, survey found, which is that in general, youth in the Arab world are getting a little more conservative. I mean, basically, there's a conservative trend. And and what this the, the Arab youth surveys found was 54% uh, of those polled emphasize the importance of religion, tradition, and family in their personal and public lives. In a similar vein, 76% were concerned about the loss of traditional values and culture, 65% overall, and 70% in the goal, prioritized preserving religion and tradition over creating a tolerant, liberal, and globalized society. So, in trying to thread this needle, you know, Saudi leadership understands the perils on both sides going too far one way or another. And you see in Saudi Arabia, you know, and, and to be honest, that that line is not entirely clear to everybody. We see people, you know, being detained in Saudi Arabia who 
we're like, you know, you don't, it wouldn't apparently be a reason for it. They may be pro Saudi, whatever they may be, you know, so like a lot of things, Saudi Arabia is trying to move in a big way in a certain direction, but they're trying to do it in a, in a nuanced, sustainable way. And so it is really interesting that they let Barbie go through, but maybe one before or the next one doesn't. Um, and I just have to believe, uh, and, and that's why I think your one big thing is good to take, you know, point out this. I just have to believe they're looking at every one of these choices that they make in terms of how much they liberalize in the context of what the load will bear, trying to be really sensitive to a, a, a basically a conservative society, trying to, you know, probably paying very close attention to these youth, uh, these surveys, and, and doing all sorts of research and data analysis on their own. Uh, Again, trying to move along a spectrum without losing control or or uh, alienated significant and key parts of their their population, uh, like so many things in Saudi Arabia today, everything is consequential and everything is a, a bit of an experiment. You know, it's not like there's a tried and true path, and you know exactly what every you know if you push this button, this happens. It's all sort of trying to figure your way through. In an, in an organic, authentic way to get where you hope to get. Interesting stuff. And so, so, and that's a long way to say this Barbie, you know, this is just a movie. Obviously, it's a billion dollar movie, it's a phenomenon all over the world, but it's a movie. But, you know, when you look at Saudi Arabia and you put it, plop it down in Saudi Arabia and here, make a choice about this, it's so much more than just a movie. Yep. And should be noted that that's a choice that they are making. Not that anybody else is making for them. And right. that's that's sort of the, and I think we overlap there. I think it's the point of this whole one big thing is just exactly what you described. This is the situation and it's pretty fascinating. I do want to see the movie. I mentioned that my I had uh, my brother and his wife and his family and my parents in town visiting. And in exchange for some golf, we allowed, not allowed, we traded, I should say, uh, a girl's outing to go see Barbie and they loved it. They couldn't stop. They tried as hard as they could to not talk about it in front of us. And I really want to see it, but I don't do movie theaters. So it's going to be a while, I'm sure. But as soon as it comes out, I can't wait to see it. And uh, it's cool that people in Saudi get to see it too. So, well, I'll, um, when I see it, I'll try not to give away the plot. You're going to be gabbing about it. You'll be wearing oh, pink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll work some pink into my golf outfit tomorrow. Mr. Wilson, um, just just as an uh, element of distraction, perhaps. <laughs> you know, yeah, this is just a, a, a nod to Barbie. I guess I could find something pink too. Yes, I should add to the, to the Margot Robbie comment. She is in so many really good movies. Like she's in some phenomenal films. Um, Wolf of Wall Street. She it's just like when you get into her IMDb, it's like she's a enormously talented. Who is who? Bargo Robbie, you say? Who is this? I've never really. Uh, <laughs> is she, is she, actor, actress? What is she? Um, <laughs> you are. I now I know somebody else is in the room listening to you, <laughs> and you're trying to avoid any trouble. Before we get in any more trouble, Richard, let's yes. get to our really awesome conversation now with Princess Michelle bin Saud Al Shahlin. She doesn't like to be called princess, so we use that in only in the introduction. Um, she's one of those enormously intelligent people who is standing on her own and just absolutely uh, providing a tremendous service to 
clients to the government on sustainability and really knows the subject inside and out. It just is so cool speaking with her. Terrific conversation. Enjoy. We are very pleased to be speaking now with Princess Mashael bin Saud al-Shahlan, founding partner at Aon Strategy based in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, which played a leading role in support of the kingdom's net zero targets under the Saudi Green Initiative and the Circular Carbon Economy Framework. Mashael, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to see you. No, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Hi, Mashael. So great you could be with us. This is, this is one of our favorite ways to do this. Uh, our good friend Daniel Ajlani, who's on a few episodes ago, and I recommend everybody listen to that that episode. She's terrific. Soon after, we, soon after we had a, a we we spoke, he, she sent a note. She says, "Oh, I was just on this panel panel, and you have to get this person on. She's she's really really good." And that, of course, was you. Um, I mean, you're always selling it right before we jump into the topic. So I, I hope your her assessment still stands by the end of our conversation. Oh no, she was really pleased, and um, and so we're delighted to have you. And and to talk about a topic, I think actually both neither Lucia and I are, are really expert in any way on, but it's really important to Saudi Arabia, really important to the planet. Before we do that, can you talk a little bit about your journey to get where you are as as you know founder of Aon? Uh, strategy and collective, but you know what what brought you to this point and 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 actually the key to I think our conversation is why? Yeah, I mean, um, to me, thinking about sustainability and about uh, development uh, in a perpetual sense that does not harm the environment, does not harm the ecosystem was almost always natural as an inclination. It never felt that it was something that needed to be uttered or framed under the framework of sustainability. Um, maybe my first uh, way of coinciding with that kind of world was when I was a very young child. Um, I recall a time when the first Gulf War happened. I was based out of Riyadh at the time. Uh, my grandfather, because of his work, uh, could not leave Riyadh, so we decided to stay with him. And as soon as the war finished, uh, we were part of this bigger effort. Obviously, as kids, we weren't doing much, but uh, seeing a lot of the adults in our lives of this uh, cleaning effort, so the oil spills uh, in the Gulf um, in, in around the eastern province of Saudi Arabia. And I recall this big image of this big blob of oil hitting the shores and thinking, wow, uh, that does not look nice. That does not smell or feel nice. And then seeing a bird trapped in it was sort of seared into my mind. Um, also, being an asthmatic kid, knowing that because of fear and pressures, and I don't know if anyone recalls, at the time there was a threat of nuclear, uh, of uh, sorry, uh, chemical warfare. We had to wear these masks uh, when we were still in the city. So the first point of action that my grandfather decided as soon as the war was over was to go to the desert. So we spent about a month in the middle of a desert, just recovering, sitting between us and nature, in spite of maybe it being counter you know, intuitive. It was not causing an uptick in my asthma, it was actually helping it calm down. So there was this signal as well that some of this naturescape that we're sometimes fearful of is not necessarily having the detrimental effect. It's not necessarily the dust um, that, that would be associated if it was not pushed to its limitations, let's say, from some of these additional pressures on both the environment and the climate. So this was the initiation of my journey to the space. So naturally, I took that aspect of it for granted. Uh, the other thing, I think for most of us Saudis, 
Um, energy is something that we don't think we're too good at understanding because it's always in the backdrop of a lot of conversations, questions around oil prices, questions around electrification. We always think of them as an afterthought and think, well, everyone must know that. Uh, I sort of hit a brick wall uh, when I attempted to do my master's education. I went into it thinking I'll carry on the history and lineage of my family of going into security studies because naturally that's a space that women were not going into and it was really interesting. I was shocked. This is uh, this is at Columbia, right? This is at Columbia, yeah. I was really shocked uh, going into SIPA, the, uh, the program, first weekend, was super concentrated on the U.S. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to spend the next two years doing that. It was some sort of a, an eternal crisis. Uh, but then I realized uh, that there are other choices and I can switch. Uh, this notion of subspecializing in sustainable development, understanding as well that if I could uh, specialize in the applied sciences, then I can almost act like, uh, uh, you know, having these different escapades outside of the policy school into all sorts of sciences, which is always a hobby of mine, playing fake scientists in one discipline or the other. Uh, so it sort of satiated my curiosity. And I came out of it at the end of it, um, was around 2014, that was just as the new development agenda was being put forth at the UN, uh, what became the SDGs at some point, uh, also the initial ideations around the Paris Agreement. Uh, so it was just a, a question of an opportune framing at the right time, I guess. Fascinating. I remember that ecological disaster of that Gulf War. Um, you know, because a lot of you know, obviously a lot of wells were blown up intentionally. But it, it was it was it, it's fascinating to hear a personal story of actually encountering it and and the impact it made. So you're off to Columbia. Uh, you reworked your whole curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> And it, as you say, it is fortuitous. You finished in 2014. Paris Agreement is 2015, which was monumental in a lot of ways. I think, it, you know, we've done things on, on 966 about um, the environment and COP, you know, the, 26, 27, now upcoming 28. Uh, and the Paris Agreement was sort of a tipping point where let's stop, let's stop discussing if climate change is real and actually see if we can take some steps to address it. How does that translate to you and how does it translate to Saudi Arabia? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that that was another serendipitous occasion because it just so happened that one of the main thinkers or main architects of the Paris Agreement used to wear both hats of Colombia and Sciences Po. Um, she was Madame Laurence Tubiana, uh, who was tasked with the undertaking of coming up with a structure for an agreement that would allow uh, an increased level of ambition after a certain point in, of time. But most importantly, is to get all countries, in spite of their big diverse uh, circumstances to agree on one document that this will be our North Star, this will be our pathway forward. And, and to be honest, uh, I was fresh graduate, um, uh, have barely mastered the 101s of climate policy and understood just the complexity of collective action. And we went into it um, both in terms of helping and converse and situate the situation in Saudi Arabia as Saudis uh, to Madame Laurence Tubiana and what will be the, the, the main points of connectivity. And I have to say the French were really good at the diplomacy aspect of it. They took their time going to different countries, understanding how they could come up with uh, something that, that would allow a pathway forward. Uh, if we don't remember it well as well, uh, the US and China sort of coalescing and saying that 
we'll put our differences aside when it comes to the climate and we'll seek some pathway for collaboration, help propel the momentum forward in the lead up to Paris. But with some people might forget that it actually went, I think if my memory serves me well, two days over time. And up to the last moment, uh, right. we were also on the edge of our seat thinking that this is not going to happen because uh, they kept getting sticked around certain words of must or shall um, up to the last moment as well. I, I vividly recall um, one of our colleagues from Nicaragua sort of raising his hand in objection and the whole abuse looking across the board and saying, no objection, the Paris Agreement has been adopted. <laughs> um, Enough of this. Yeah, I think that our, our, our colleague from Nicaragua wanted even more ambition, but Laurent Fabius understood that that was the limit at which they could pass an agreement at that point. Um, obviously, a lot of the hard work was not put into that first text. Uh, so some of the details of what was called the rule book was sort of pushed to a point later in time. Uh, what you, they understood at that point was you needed to rebuild this question of trust uh, on the system and a trust of going into something that would allow for flexibility for different countries' circumstances. Fascinating. So um, you established the, uh, Aon. Now, now, what's it? You have Aon Collective, and then there's Aon Strategy. Correct. And um, well, it was not me on my own. It was my, myself and, and my partner. And I'm stuff. sorry. Yeah. Yes. Um, a collective you. Yes. <laughs> uh, can you, and, and it's, you know, by the way, all your work, website, papers, that sort of thing, are really well done. I don't know who you're, you're, you know, who's putting your tab together or your creative designer, that sort of thing, but it's well done. Thank you. We're sticklers. I think between Noor and myself, uh, we're sticklers for design. Information on its own, unfortunately, is not enough to connect to a wider audience. So understanding how do you project it and do it in a way that connects visually to people is very important. Well, it shows and it reflects well on you. It's very detailed oriented and it's, and it's, and it's uh, very attractive in the way it's done. But right at the top, about. And um, we'll start thinking, you know, it's, you know, it's a cross-disciplinary work. And I think which is a nonprofit endowment fund. But I think for our listeners, you know, what a WAF is, is interesting, but that actively supports sustainability and development. But can you take us through how you, the collective, you, uh, you know, what Aon Collective is, what Aon Strategy is, and, 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 and you know, just tell us about this story. Yeah, of course. Um, so we understood, uh, well, we were lucky enough, I think, and maybe stupid enough, both Noor and Dao, to have applied. This is how we, by the way, this is how we feel about the 9-6. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Good. <laughs> because sometimes putting all of your eggs into one basket uh, is, is not highly recommended. Uh, but uh, I think we were also useful enough to think that we might get away with it. Uh, we both applied to uh, the same program at SIPA. We we're cousins. Uh, thinking that uh, most definitely they'll accept the two of us. Uh, Nora was accepted there first, actually. Um, I, I got uh, uh, waitlisted, uh, only to be accepted a few weeks after the fact. Very, very, very scary weeks. Uh, but uh, as we were going through that program, we were sort of trying to imagine well, what we do after the fact that we graduate. Uh, we wanted to start from a point that we were able to support on our own, um, uh, that was not reliant on any external counterparts that would enable us to sort of chart our own vision to what needed to exist within the ecosystem. And that's why to us, creating a consultancy was 
the lowest hanging fruit. Uh, it's something that we could develop between my mind and hers that did not require much else uh, other than our ability to think within a space. Um, we definitely started from the very bottom. Uh, so starting to try and understand within that space, uh, what are the dynamics? Uh, our expertise was in policy, but proper policymaking cannot function in vacuum. Um, you know, we cannot come fresh out of a university and try to apply our chops on understanding models or different policies that have worked in other circumstances to Saudi Arabia. So we started the very bottom, understanding the dynamics of the home, uh, people's consumptions, consumption patterns, behavioral patterns, what would work and what wouldn't. Um, that happened to be around the period when Vision 2030 was starting to emerge, and with it, a beginning of an understanding of this concept of sustainability, alignment of that to the SDGs in the kingdom. So I have to say in the beginning, we were not envisioning a sustainable development consultancy, right? Uh, for us, sustainability was a given. Uh, obviously, coming through academia, it was also overused in a lot of cases, but we understood that the ecosystem was starting to understand it and there was a massive opportunity to start to influence the space from within. Um, obviously, the ambitions of uh, Vision 2030 that uh, uh, His Royal Highness the Crown Prince has put forth enabled a very clear signal to all of the ecosystem in Saudi Arabia that the way that things have operated in the past could no longer happen in the future. There needed to be almost a complete redefinition of how we approach the question, primarily uh, this massive area of abundance uh, of energy. So we started uh, building it piece by piece, understanding the energy efficiency component uh, at a later stage, understanding then how that could be influencing the energy price reform part of the equation, and then starting to understand, well, what would a pathway for Saudi Arabia look like in terms of a decarbonization? So what would a net zero pathway for Saudi look like? Um, and it's through that prism that we started to work more and more with government on both the crafting of policies, on the helping the development with a lot of brilliant colleagues in their own right, both within the institution and without on some national level programs, be it the Circular Carbon Economy National Program or other efforts, that there needed to be that kind of drive from within to understand what would policies that are in alignment with Saudi Arabia's set of endowments look like and how can we ensure that this is something uh, of credibility that would ensure continuity in the long run. At the same time, as we were doing these efforts from within the system, we understood very early on that that cannot happen in vacuum. Maybe sometimes the limitations of what a client wants, wishes, desires, uh, sort of uh, ties you to a specific corner or a space of ideation. But we needed to have this additional uh, body that attended to the public good. And that was the inception of Eon Collective, of a waqf that's independent, that allowed us to work without any red lines, that allowed us to explore and push the boundaries of concepts that were not yet ripe for picking, let's say, in our early operations as the consultancy. So some of the concepts around the early definitions of the circular carbon economy uh, concept, uh, understanding that that would not come to pass without a net zero goal or target, uh, some of the work around uh, carbon markets, uh, a price on carbon, um, were some of the early uh, facets of what we started to do under the collective. So where we stand today, uh, I think on a much varied group of topics as both the consultancy uh, grew, uh, including within it different areas of expertise on a broad range of topics from arts and culture to built environment sustainability to ecosystem regeneration restoration. It allows us to sort of have this tug and pull from both sides of the equation um, towards a common goal. Uh, 
I always say it in short to us. I think this is our mindset, is our real client is Saudi Arabia and the well-being of the country. So we don't see it as two different pieces or competing interests uh, into one space. But these are all bodies that are trying to get us in a certain directionality and the small role that we can play within this bigger uh, ecosystem. Are you guys do like you're doing consultancy like just in in Saudi? Like, are you do you have clients outside of Saudi Arabia around the world? Or are you expanding or where are you on that? We do. Uh, actually, we have a, a team that's quite diverse. Um, so our our head of built environment sustainability just came from Lendlease. Um, so she has massive experience from the US uh, built environment aspect uh, to leads on ecosystem regeneration restoration are also based out of the US um, um, from Colorado and, and uh, uh, trying to remember where the other one is based out of, um, uh, Cleveland. Um, and, and then uh, some massive experience as well in Europe. So they're quite diverse uh, and, and with it an ability to connect to different projects around the world. We have done projects outside of Saudi in the past, but because of the opportunity of what's happening here, uh, the bulk of our focus to date has been in, in Saudi, uh, most, mo mostly, except for the odd projects. So you just tossed off a bunch of big concepts right there. And, you know, the Saudi Green Initiative, um, carbon tax, circular carbon economy. These are big, big issues that Saudi Arabia is dealing with, and they're trying to formulate how to deal with it. Have, have you been plugged in on each of these in terms of how the, the government is trying to address these these topics? And they're big ones. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think our first, uh, that's where I see a lot of connectivity, honestly, uh, between Saudi Arabia and the United States. Um, for a lot of our thinking and a lot of the thought processes and maybe in some ways the general uh, timeline of the makeup of an, of an economy and an ecosystem uh, falls under a similar uh, oddly, trajectories. Uh, so when I'm talking about the concept of the circular carbon economy, for example, the first time I came across it was from the Department of Agriculture in the US. Uh, and that was their attempt of trying to figure out what would uh, a systematic way of looking at emissions from the agricultural sector look like when it comes to the carbon piece. And how can we uh, start addressing it in a way that's systematic, that does not only look at one point in this journey, but looks at it from the beginning to the end. Um, in the Saudi context, and I think very far from thinking and maybe tangentially not connected to that initial inception, uh, was uh, the coming up with this framework from His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman. So I remember him uh, being appointed Minister of Energy end of 2019. Um, there was uh, the incident that happened in, in uh, the eastern province, as we all recall, uh, to, to some of our uh, massive oil wealth repositories, let's say. Um, uh, at the same time, uh, that was diplomatic were, when when you were attacked. Yes. <laughs> um, the, the other way that that we can also look at it is that that was not a point where we were saying, uh, but we reacted so well that the the ecosystem thought that it must be easy and that uh, nothing really happened uh, in spite of how big that impact was at the time. Um, Arguably, that was also a signal that we're not standing still. And what uh, Zoral Highness President Aziz clearly signaled, as I recall, around it was the Miss Global Forum 
um, introduction of a pathway to both balance the sustainability element in our hydrocarbon intensive ecosystem. This is the formulation or the utterance of the circular carbon economy as a framework. It wasn't yet defined at the time. And uh, a lot of different colleagues within the uh, think tank ecosystem started to work on it. We did our own take as well and published a paper uh, in the uh, beginning of March uh, 2020 on the definition of the concept. But in short, it's a system that looks at carbon throughout the value chain. And similar to the circular economy, sort of anchors around the three R's of a circular economy, but adds a fourth one um, just to deal with the nature of carbon system. So the first is the reduce component. So just minimize uh, emissions. You can think of it as mitigation in, in its most definite ways, energy efficiency, renewables, all sorts of ways that you're bypassing emissions. Then you go to the reuse uh, component and the recycle component. So either taking the carbon and using it again in the reuse case without changing its chemistry. So uh, in this bottle that's uh, not uh, seen, uh, I mean, I have Perrier inside it and that's water with some sparkling gas, that's, that's CO2 that's being injected into it. So that uh, sort of defines the reuse component. Uh, the recycle is a space where you would modify the chemistry a little bit. So you can think of it um, in simple terms of creating ammonia or ways, ways that you would grow your plants better with the use of these uh, fertilizers. Uh, so that's the recycle component. And at the very least, and most importantly, is this remove component. And why is it important? Uh, we already have too much CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, we need to find some way of tackling it by either removing it directly of the atmosphere or removing it from the systems that are usually emitted. So you can think of it in the form of scrubbers uh, and power plants. Instead of putting that additional CO2 in the atmosphere, you're capturing it and doing useful things with it, either by storing it or by putting it under the recycle or the reuse uh, component. So uh, to us, that sort of signified a way that looked uh, at a comprehensive system and a systematic approach of tackling GHG emissions, which to um, our expectation uh, up to a certain point was not done in the past. Uh, so uh, while maybe the rest of the world might see it as a Saudi endeavor or a Saudi effort, we see it as a way that uh, looks at uh, a systematic approach for decarbonization that is agnostic to the pathway that you take as long as you tackle the main culprit in that case, which are emissions. It's interesting that you made the parallel with the U.S. And you, when we spoke last week, I was laughing about my my youngest, who's a uh, my daughter, who's a, a senior in college now, but she's been interning at a at a at a uh, a sustainability startup essentially. Mm -hmm. And when she first and she loves it, and 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 when she first started, I said, yes. You know, you need to get into sustainability because nobody knows what it is, but everybody feels like they should do it. Yeah. Um, so, so is 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 this? It's you know, it's a different governing approach in Saudi Arabia. And one of the great advantages in Saudi Arabia is, you know, if there's a a decision is made, and you can move pretty quickly on it. You don't have uh, some of the intervening steps in the U.S. that might slow down a process or might you know, you know, weaken a, a, a an initiative. It, how is it received in Saudi Arabia? When, when we talk about sustainability in Saudi Arabia and you're going out and you're talking to corporates, you're talking to individuals, you're talking to institutions, how is it perceived? 
I mean, I have to say that in the beginning, um, there was not much receptiveness to the issue of sustainability. It was seen as a nice to have component or something that would cost a lot of money. Um, and I'm talking here pre-2018, uh, right? As people were starting to wrap their head around some of those key concepts. To us, the biggest signal that the government has sent was the inception of the Saudi Green Initiative. It did one of two things. One, uh, the fact that it's annual, it's cyclical. Uh, I like to call it our own ratchet mechanism. So uh, this is my nerd uh, within me. If you're thinking <laughs> about the Paris Agreement, every five years, every country around the world is asked to put better ambitions. What we're doing in Saudi Arabia, well, we said we're doing that on an annual basis. Hmm. So there's a way of tracking progress. There's a way of every single player of a certain size within the ecosystem of putting forth what are they doing to enable us to achieve that goal of net zero by 2060. So without that goalpost, none of this would have, would have been possible. Uh, it also signaled the seriousness with which the government is tackling the issue. So while let's say in the details of it, uh, we're very much uh, a top harmonizer kind of country where we set broad goals and targets, but then when it comes to the details of how do you deliver, we're very much a, a bottom-ish up kind of approach. So it's never command and control. It's never you have to do X, Y, and Z up to a certain point until the different players gain confidence. Uh, it's always an invitation of what can you contribute? Uh, what do you see is it something that's exciting within the space? I think that's the general space of operation for um, sort of the private sector players within the system. And we've seen over time uh, the level of sophistication of understanding of what does sustainability mean? And what does sustainability mean to us in that context as, for example, Red Sea Global? What does sustainability mean to us as Kingston Land Park? It starts to trick down and become a lot more granular in that context and we're seeing it go beyond these bigger projects where where sustainability is almost expected as the norm to other smaller projects that are starting to integrate some of those frameworks now where i think there's still a lot to be done and that's where institutions like ours and collaboration with others have a lot um, to do is in terms of reaching the broader public so I, I think I've chatted with you uh, on the sidelines of this before, Richard, uh, but Lucian, I don't know if you're aware uh, of the temperature increases that we've already witnessed in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we're considered uh, as the Arabian Peninsula overall, but more specifically in Saudi Arabia, even more specifically among the coasts of the Arabian mm -hmm. Gulf, as one of the hot zones of temperature increases, right? So when we're talking about this one uh, and a half degree, two degree goal or target, uh, what we've already seen in um, our region uh, compared to, let's say, the northern hemisphere increases uh, per decade. Per decade, uh, on average, everywhere around the world, we've seen a consistent 0 0.37 degree C increase every decade. Our region had witnessed 0 0.48 degree C uh, mm -hmm. in our region alone, which means that we're much closer to that 1.5 degree than we would have anticipated in the past. And of course that has its own set of connotations, but um, you know, if you lower the temperature in your room by one or two degrees, you'd be, uh, it would be very difficult to feel. Even upping it by one or two degrees would also be difficult to feel. Uh, um, I mean, corner to that thinking, um, especially in our region, is that we've witnessed massive amounts of growth in that same period. So I always say, 
you know, if the temperature increased by three or four or five degrees, uh, depending on the wet bulb uh, aspect and depending on the city, if my bus stop is air conditioned and my car is air conditioned mm -hmm. and uh, my office is air conditioned, uh, it would be very difficult for me to sense that relatively slight uh, temperature increase um, in the short term. Over longer periods of time where you have maybe less opportunity to act, you might start feeling it more and more prominently in a stickier fashion over multiple years. Uh, but it's a question of uh, what action can the government and the bigger players do as you catch up uh, the level of, uh, let's say, education within the public of the changes that we've already witnessed to date. Hmm. Yeah, we, we've, we've, we, we, you know, the, the, the global heat wave, you know, has sparked a lot of discussion. We've done a, a Lucian did a segment on it recently. Um, so the Aon Collective and it, and it focuses, um, your office sent a really interesting series of, of documents and, and the tree library, I want to get to you to see exactly what that is, but you focus on climate change, pollution, biodiversity. How do you go about this in terms of education and, and consulting and advice? Yeah, uh, I mean, maybe I'll take a step back and think, why do we focus on all of those three topics? Um, sometimes people think that if you handle or tackle one of them, then by default, you're tackling the others. Uh, I've had a recent unfortunate uh, uh, example that I saw firsthand of how that does not seem to work. Uh, so we went to visit a friend of ours in Costa Rica, of all places. I don't know if you're familiar with the Asa Peninsula. Have you, either of you been to Costa Rica? Yeah, I have. I, but not yeah. to that peninsula, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it's known as one of the hot zones of uh, biodiversity. So it's incredibly beautiful, both in terms of the marine diversity and the terrestrial. So we went to visit a friend of ours that ran an NGO there uh, that was placed in a primary forest. And what we were seeing on our drive over uh, was these uh, what I call severed highways of carbon credits, right? Um, so we think we'd be doing well by planting some of these trees and issuing carbon credits for each of those trees. But if we do them in the wrong way, if we, let's say, plant the exact same tree in a specific plot of land, we'd be destroying that plot, both in its capability of capturing more carbon in the soil, or in some cases, things that are as simple as severing highways for certain types of monkeys. So unbeknownst to me, uh, one of the types of monkeys there relied on its tail to move from one place to the other. Oh. The tree that they just happened to plant within that plot did not have enough branches to enable that monkey to move from one primary forest to the other. So without knowing, we were severing highways for some of those animals and with it, their ability to cope, their ability to adapt to a lot of the pressures that were they were facing. So we understood very early on that sometimes trying to solve for one issue would not be by definition solving for another. And we needed to have this comprehensive outlook and uh, how we tackle things uh, within the space. Obviously as well, because of the diversity of the topics, these are not things that we can take on our own. Um, so that word collective is something that we take to heart. It's something that requires us to pull uh, along the strengths of all of these different players within the ecosystem. So if you're thinking, um, you know, what roles could we be playing within it? We take one of main three main roles. One is that of harmonizers. So where we see really good efforts happening within the ecosystem, but might be a lot more effective. We try and connect the dots and try to push 
some kind of cohesion and directionality to where things are heading. In spaces where we see uh, maybe an effort not to exist, but there's some good solid research that could provide some solid outcome, we play the role of architects. I mean, a big example of that is uh, a publication that we launched last year on the state of climate and health research in the GCC. We knew different researchers were working on different pieces. Some pieces were not at all addressed by uh, subject matters on, on within the field or tangentially on how that relate, relied back to climate change. We tried to put all of those pieces of the puzzle and come up with something that's cohesive on, on the matter. And the last and where we see major gaps, we play the role of catalysts. So in spaces where we know no one else is sort of being the pole bearer or uh, are, are too um, reserved to go into that space because of one reason or the other, like some of the early explorations of carbon pricing, uh, we tend to be first movers within that space, bringing on board all of these different players, building up their confidence, in some cases, building up their capacities to be able to deliver on what's needed in that space. Uh, we say in Arabic, so there's nothing that you can do on your own. Tra you transliterate it to say one hand cannot clap, you need both to be able to do something. <laughs> um, so, so that's something that, that we try to ingrain into all of the efforts that we do. Collaboration is a really cool word. Uh, collective is, is is a nice has a nice ring to it. But I have to tell you from experience firsthand, it's not as easy as 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 one might like it to be. But it is worth the payoff. Uh, you know, doing things uh, in collaboration, in coalition uh, with, with other players in the in the space. Um, for areas of topic for us uh, for this year, we're mainly focused on climate mitigation and adaptation. We're doing a lot of work on how do you leverage sports for climate action and this new space that we're exploring around what role could the arts be playing in providing better, more comprehensive healthcare uh, uh, and opportunities for well-being within the Arab region. So whose ear do you have? And I say that because in terms of development of policy that, that, that drives a lot of this, um, are you plugged? Are you able to, uh, uh, you know, are, are, are policymakers, are they reaching out to you for, you know, how might we do this? And this, this as I said, this ex extends all the way from the uh, Saudi Green Initiative to, you know, the policy that they'll take over to the next COP, you know, Egypt 4 or the upcoming one. Uh, are, are, you, are you able to plug in when policy is formulated and debated and considered? It depends. It depends on which piece of the puzzle. There are certain stakeholders that we've known for years. I think a key component of all of that is building up trust between the different players within the system, um, ensuring as well that that trust is earned. Uh, it's not something that people would, would give to you. And it has to be built on uh, knowledge that's being developed within that specific uh, space of interest. Um, in a lot of cases, we, we saw that we were not trying to push things um, uh, because we thought that they needed to happen. Uh, it was sort of a combination between getting certain decision makers trust, uh, having conversations around it, not being sticklers to our initial idea because things evolve. We might be wrong and we were wrong in a lot of circumstances, being humble enough to know when you are and when you aren't and how to focus on the betterment of the idea to move things forward. Um, we take this philosophy uh, that we sort of borrowed from uh, Islamic heritage and, and what they added to this uh, confirmation, you know, this um, uh, idea of debate. Um, 
we don't like the word debate. It's not about my idea winning or that of the others. It's this question of tenador. So it's mainly anchored around how can you make the idea better and how can you ensure that sometimes uh, perfection uh, is not what wins. Uh, it's what could be passed or would be passable. Uh, so having that level of pragmatism and, and um, malleability uh, be integrated into the process. Um, I, I mean, from inception as well, uh, it was starting and creating these safe spaces where people can have conversations. We started it with the Saudi sustainability talks, for example, uh, where people are not their institutions. They're just coming in with their brains, uh, their perspectives, um, creating spaces where the opinion of others are respected. Um, and ensuring that these are not as well pie in the sky kind of thinking. These are things that are implementable, that you know are in alignment with certain pain points of decision makers, be it in government or in some of the bigger uh, companies operating spaces. Um, in the bigger picture, what what role can Saudi play? I say that because. Uh, you know, they just hosted a, a international conference on Ukraine. They're they're really uh, expanding their diplomatic uh, reach, their diplomatic activity. You know, Saudi Arabia and, and and the king and the crown prince see Saudi Arabia as a middle power, uh, sort of a nexus between Europe, Asia, and Africa, um, a, a leader in the region across any number of areas. It's also you know, a leading energy, leading energy producing, you know, a nation in, in the world. It's working towards a post oil economy. Um, you know, it's engaging with with on climate change at the at recent COPs and talking about all right, let's expand our understanding of how do we mitigate emissions and and not just reduction of production, but also carbon capture. So they're they're already taking a, a more active, engaged role on the issue of sustainability. Yeah. I mean, um, to be honest, where we envision Saudi playing a massive role uh, is in bridging this gap of this crisis of trust that's existing um, globally. Um, so when we're talking about this triple planetary crisis, uh, just to narrow it down into one sentence, in reality, what we're trying to do, and by the way, we're seeing examples of this happening all around the world, you know, with the El Nino hitting this year, we're seeing forest fires, um, floods, uh, we've just seen the devastating fires in Maui uh, a few days ago. Um, these are all happening in a context where uh, people are antagonizing the positions of one another. Um, everyone is trying to um, sort of pander to their own demographic and public. Uh, um, there's There's been very a, a continuously narrowing space and room for this quiet diplomacy. And that's where I think Saudi Arabia could play a massive role. Um, I'd like to call it the, the Bedouin approach to, to policy making. Uh, I mean, we just because of the nature of how we used to live in these really hard to reach places, um, you had to deliver uh, based on two core beliefs and tenets, is that you cannot overpromise. Um, so you had to always uh, have a level of credibility in what you're promising. Uh, and what you were always aiming for is over-delivery. So combining the two, uh, I mean, the biggest example of that uh, is committing to net zero by 2060. Would we have loved 2060? No. Uh, uh, I think 2060 is way too far. Um, do we believe that Saudi Arabia is able to achieve it by 2040? Yes, at the pace of 
action that we're already seeing de developing concretely on the ground, but I don't see that being too difficult. And the most important component into all of this is the power of our youth. Um, you have people that are born into a generation that are not taught that anything is impossible. It's all pathways of possibilities of, uh, you know, doing things in a wide variety of, of disciplines and topics that, uh, you know, Saudis from my generation could not even dream of, right? Um, there's this whole uh, aspect as well of leveraging the other 50% of your ecosystem of women. And we're seeing that being translated into the number, the increasing number of women showing up in the workforce. I mean, the last census gave us a number of 37%. Um, that still has a lot of room for improvement in certain sectors. I mean, that's one example is not being fully translated within the energy ecosystem. We're still at 4% of women representation. So you can see already that there's massive room for growth and there are already systems that are in place to help enable uh, that room for growth. So um, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, to, to put it really bluntly, I think it's this message of hope and can do mentality uh, coupled with this Bedouin ethos that I think Saudis almost naturally uh, geared to play a massive role within that space and its ability to really leverage its know-how uh, uh, you know for that quiet diplomacy that rebuilding of trust of uh, these massive chasms that are appearing left right and center and i think we're lucky enough as well that we've gained confidence over the last few years um, you know the more that we're doing and we're demonstrating by doing, we're, we're gaining confidence in our own abilities mm -hmm. to push those boundaries further. Um, so to me, it's only, there's only one way and it's up. Um, and honestly, if we're responsible actors, then I believe that we are, uh, that that would definitely be leveraged in pushing forth the climate agenda in a way that goes beyond these uh, empty void promises and more focused on what we, could we deliver concretely here on the ground to everyone without leaving anyone behind in this process. You know, one thing that I always uh, connect to, uh, Richard and, and Lucian, uh, is this notion of ever energy poverty. Um, you know, uh, the IEA and, and the number that they usually allocate to that uh, uh, question of what mandates energy poverty in specific locations compared to others. Um, well, if we're telling certain countries that all you're able to do is plug in um, one AC for a few hours, um, you know, nothing that goes beyond the 100 kilowatt hour in cities and in rural areas going down to 50 kilowatt hours, uh, no, nowhere near uh, the electricity that's needed um, to cool them off. And these are some of the most hard hit places around the world. I think that there's definite lack of justice in how that topic is being approached. Um, but that does not mean that we will continue to do things the way things were and continuing the pathway to pollution. There's always a better, more just, more even keeled way and pathway forward. Um, and so, yes, maybe because I'm Saudi, uh, uh, I'm, I'm proud of where, where we stand today. But I think even if I weren't, I would definitely see the early semblances of what Saudi Arabia can do if Saudi does it in simple terms. That no one else has, you know, uh, any excuse not to do things in, in, in the appropriate manner. Yeah, because it's getting warmer and warmer in Saudi faster. So as a leader there, 
that makes sense. What are you expecting coming out of COP28 coming up? I mean, what, what, what should the world expect? And then what are you expecting? Honestly, uh, if, if we're being really blunt here, I, I, I was, I mean, the proof will be upon COP28. Uh, and I'm not one to project things before things happen. Maybe I'll go with what I hope uh, will come out of the COP. Uh, what I was hoping and maybe might not be able to see is a bit more rigor on how would a pathway for the oil and gas sector look like uh, in terms of decarbonization. And I say decarbonization in terms of emissions, uh, not by stopping those industries altogether. Um, I believe in specific countries under specific circumstances for specific needs, there will still be a need for these additional barrels of oil, these additional uh, shipments of gas. Um, if we don't really tackle the very difficult task at hand, uh, my fear is that it will just be some really good talk. Um, and yeah, you know, the atmosphere won't really care of these beautiful uh, promises that we're making or the documentations that we're putting, right? Uh, as long as it's continuing to be on the receiving end of those emissions. Um, so I was hoping for something that's a bit more progressive on that front that includes uh, the companies on the table that ensures that this is something that is done with utmost transparency, but that engages them as opposed to vilifying them and saying you have no place at the table. Um, and, and that's a big banner uh, that you know was expected out of COP28, um, is that everyone has a role to play and everyone has to play that role uh, to the, uh, their utmost ability. Um, I'm expecting a lot of announcements on renewables. I think it's quite natural because uh, IRENA is based out of the UAE and everyone loves renewables, so I don't think that there would be too much uh, controversy in that sense. Um, I'm hoping, and we've already been playing that role uh, as Arab countries in the past, for bigger representation and real representation of youth within the climate debate arena, not tokenization, not taking you know, uh, young people from different countries and just parading them down the halls, but actually having them participate and having their voice heard and integrated into the process. I say that we've done it in the past, because if you saw the Saudi negotiation team or, um, you know, uh, the UAE negotiation team at the, the last few COPs, they tended to skew quite useful. And I was very pleasantly surprised to see that it was skewing a very feminine, especially in the, in the Saudi negotiation team. So, uh, you know, our youth in Saudi and the UAE are not tangential to the decision-making. They're there negotiating on behalf of the country at uh, the most important uh, for us. So I'm hoping for this to translate for bigger uh, representation of the youth. Um, the more important COP, in, in my opinion, to be focusing on uh, post-COP28 is COP30 in Brazil. Uh, that will be when countries are meant to increase their ambitions, when NDCs are meant to reflect a certain level of evolution. Um, it's also coming to uh, a country uh, that has just regained its footing on, on the climate arena um, that's aiming to tackle massive pressures on the Amazon and on the blue Amazon, which is, um, you know, if you extend the same Amazon back into the ocean, uh, so be it the mangroves or the corals uh, along that reef. I think that that's, uh, that, that'll be the COP uh, uh, to keep in sight um, uh, over the next uh, few years. But let's say at COPs, we remain hopeful. We do what we can. Uh, we try to bridge gaps uh, 
between different positions and we see how could we increasingly be pushing the boundaries of what could be done um, um, on the climate agenda. Your um, your mention of youth and young people, you you probably saw that recent ruling in Montana, um, mm-hmm. you know where a, a you know a group of young people won a major climate case, you know by arguing that state failed to protect their right to a clean environment. I mean that's a compelling argument. I I also think it's fascinating your discussion. I love your your reference to you know the Bedouin approach. Um, <clears throat> issue of trust though and the role Saudi could play. Because, you know, coming out of the Paris Agreement, I think something, we're not experts, we're just observers, but, you know, it's clear there was really no grasp on the energy transition, how fast it was going to come, what was needed. And specifically, you referenced it, you know, the consequences of energy deficit. You know, if you can't make the switch, you still have significant swaths of the global population who, you know, are energy deprived. Mm -hmm. So how how do we bridge all this? And then, of course, there's issues of, of a transfer of support from for more developed countries to emerging co- economies, you know, it it, it it it's all like who goes first. It's it's all a matter of trust, and and with each one of these cops, it's been interesting to see you know trying to get a little more rigorous in your goals, trying to be a little more specific, and then holding you to that. With each step, it's sort of trying to build trust, and that is interesting how you say Saudi Arabia can play a role with that. Honestly, uh, I would most definitely think so, but not necessarily maybe within the COP process. And I'm glad that you brought the issue of uh, litigation uh, into the mix. Um, What people need to understand is that Saudi is extremely risk averse when it comes to uh, its global positioning and what it's mandated to do or not do. And this is why I say the, the Bedouin approach. If you saw our NDC, uh, you know, anyone upon first glance would know that our current plans take us well beyond uh, those ambitions, let's say, if if we have a, a consistent improving curve on that, on that, uh, let, let's say, buildup of confidence as we achieve some of our uh, goals and targets within that space. Um, but what you put into your NDC sort of opens you up to this gray area of what can or cannot be uh, brought into the litigation space, right? Uh, so I understand maybe the risk averseness of uh, the country wanting to commit on things that are more stringent on the NDC itself. Where I think it matters is action. So not what I'm saying I will do, it's what I'm actually doing. So to me, I, I look at the Saudi situation in two different prongs. Maybe within the COP process itself, because of what we have to do in a lot of cases as well, a lot of countries that uh, you know want to push certain agendas do not want to be at the forefront of doing it. I, I think Saudi has been scapegoated in a lot of situations for things that other countries would love to do or know that Saudi Arabia would not be allowing as red lines, so they can you know posture and look like they're doing uh, right. you know what needs to be done, but because they know that Saudi Saudi will have to to position itself in a way uh, to block certain advancements uh, within that sense. I've made my piece of thinking, and because I see this happening and translating on the ground, what we're committing to on the COP space is not what we're doing on the SGI space. And I'm more interested on what's happening on concrete action on the ground. So what are the projects that are being developed? I mean, um, I I don't want to list a long list of numbers but if we're looking at uh, 
the renewable energy projects that are, have already been signed. Um, and and I, I think to date, we've already exceeded 100.4 gigawatts and are already surely on our pathway to achieving uh, the rest of our 50% goals or targets by the intended uh, timeline. Uh, although some might argue that that has progressed slowly, but to us who understand the complexities of the legislative side of what policies needed to be in place of the infrastructure that that would enable the uptake of these renewables know that it will just be a question of going slow but then going really fast uh, the other thing that really caught our attention was the commitment that uh, his royal highness made last year uh, around the uh, natural gas power so mm -hmm. the decision was made that no new natural gas power plants were to be commissioned without carbon capture i mean to my knowledge, no country um, um, of the scale of Saudi Arabia has made such a commitment. Uh, um, so you're essentially saying that for the bulk of your additional 50% that is, was meant to be um, uh, you know, reliant on natural gas, a good chunk of it will be decarbonized. And over time, the rest of the system will, will take hold. Uh, uh, as an opportunity to decarbonize. The establishment of a carbon capture and sequestration uh, hub out of Jebel. Uh, 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 um, I mean, uh, we know that uh, to date, um, there was uh, a national commitment of CCS target by 2035 of 44 million tons uh, uh, per annum. Um, and we already heard that even before launching that project, that aims to, to achieve 9 million tons annually by 2027, um, companies around that hub were already oversubscribed. So the ask is already exceeding uh, what mm. the plans were. So, um, and that's even before beginning uh, uh, that, that initial operation. A lot of the commitments that we're hearing out of NEOM, for example, um, on uh, hydrogen, primarily green hydrogen, some of the conversations that we're hearing around green maritime fuels, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, I'm not going to list everything in, in one go. Um, that's also being paralleled with the PIF's commitment in collaboration with the Tadawid for uh, the voluntary carbon market. Um, mm -hmm. and we've seen two sides of the equation. We've seen our friends, for example, in SABIC, priding themselves of having bid for the least amount possible because of how stringent their own policies for buying carbon offsets work. Um, so we're seeing really sophisticated conversations emerge within the system that gives us confidence on what that trajectory will look like. Um, now, it's within that space of this parallel effort to the COP that I think confidence building will come into play um, to the point that you were sort of alluding to. There are a lot of countries that are being asked to forego development goals and aspirations uh, uh, because of this pathway to decarbonize. I say this because if there was truth to giving an alternative pathways, we'd see this being translated in the amount of funding and financing that's going to that sphere. I mean, again, it's a question of pace, you know, the money that's coming out of uh, the World Bank or any of these multilateral banks is not enough to bridge the gap of what's needed to be developed within those uh, countries. So the whole continent of Africa, um, some of the countries in South America, in addition to uh, Southeast um, Asia. So there's a lot uh, 
that needs to be done within that space. Um, and again, that's another space on the finance piece where I see Saudi starting to play a more sophisticated role. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know if you've caught the conversations of His Excellency Jet and last year at WEF uh, around commitments for uh, foreign aid and, and that concept and tying of sustainability into financial sustainability and how that money is being spent so it's it's not the same mode uh, that that we're taking let's say to support some of those kinds of efforts more recently multiple signings that the saudi fund for development uh, are spearheading all around the world for certain energy projects uh, primarily anchored around renewable and and hydros so uh, it's starting to emerge i think again to me and understanding that Bedouin approach of we need to gain confidence within a space, the more that we do, the more that we feel that, yeah, that's actually working, uh, the more that we gain confidence and the more that this will prove um, to be of value. Because at the end of the day, the crux of the matter is, again, on action. Um, If we can walk the talk better than anyone, uh, then, yeah, maybe we can start playing more of a role in in bridging that gap of, of trust. Well, I think, um, first of all, I think it's fascinating your distinction between COP, the COP process and Saudi Green Initiative. And, and I'll, you know, I think that's one of the things that Saudi Arabia has done well um, over the last, uh, since 2016, but over the last five years specifically, is they've done the work. In other words, you have a proposition, you have goals, this sort of thing, but in order to get there, you have to do the work. Um, but I, the the thing I love most is, and I think it's a mantra we should all endorse and adopt is under promise and overperform, and the world would be a better place. I cannot agree more. I think, uh, yeah, let's talk more more action. We, we say in Saudi shemmer, so it's quite literally just removing the cloth off of your hand and getting your hands dirty and doing doing the work. That's what needs to be. Uh, done uh, in all seriousness. Let's talk in, in more action. Princess Mishael bin Saud Al Shahlan, founding partner at Aon Strategy in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, which played a leading role in support of the kingdom's net zero targets under the Saudi Green Initiative and the Circular Carbon Economy Framework. Mishael, it was a delight to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you both, Richard and Lucian. I hope I'm not, I haven't overwhelmed everyone with all of this information, but it's just to say that we're just at the very beginning of a long journey, uh, and it requires all of us to have a deeper understanding of sometimes, you know, spaces that we did not subscribe to, just as I did at the very beginning. I thought I was going to, but maybe, maybe it would have been better off if I went to security studies and would not be. <laughs> That was our conversation with Princess Mishael bin Saud al-Shathlan. She was just wonderful and we really appreciate her time. Richard, solid job. Excellent. Easy. Easy. We talked about that. We did prep for that. Uh, she said, just give me, <laughs> guys, just give me room, get out of the way. So we did. And that's why it's a great episode. And we should note that the conversation could have gone on for another few hours. We had to sort of put a pin in it, um, given some time restraints, general ballpark time restraints. But then we discontinued the recording and kept talking with her. And we were like, we should have just kept the recording going. We did. She's still so brilliant that we should have included this. So um, can we we put this back in? Yeah, can we put it back in? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we thank her for her time. Just brilliant stuff she's doing. Richard, let's get to Yala. Sorry. Yala.
Well, should by, by the hundredth, maybe we'll have that's next week. There's not enough time. We're going to be doing this again. Every week. Well, I've noticed, by the way, it gets increasingly incoherent, which I think is really a testimony to the direction of the show. Yes. And the <laughs> general sanity direction that we are heading in 99 episodes in going into 100, which is something we're both very proud of. And we love all the listeners and viewers that have been on this journey with us. So it's really fun. We do have fun doing it, but it also is a lot of work. So your patronage and feedback is helpful as always. Nothing short of awesome and a great surprise to us. And then, you know, how, how special are things in life that are a great surprise? And that's what this is. So thank you all. all right. Yella number one uh, from uh, press release from Hilton Hotels, uh, quote, as Saudi Arabia continues to fulfill its, fulfill its vision of becoming a world leader of international travel and tourism, Hilton has announced plans to open over 50 new hotels across 10 of its brands, making the country the company's largest pipeline market in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Hilton has accelerated its growth strategy in Saudi Arabia in recent years, announcing multiple signings as the company works towards its plan to increase its portfolio to more than 75 trading properties across the country, unquote. What's cool about this too is not just that they will be building more Hiltons, but they're expanding the different offerings. So there's a Conrad Hotels and Resorts that is going to be part of Riyadh, really outside a little bit outside of downtown, downtown, but Conrad, Riyadh, Laysan Valley, which is, I guess, now kind of in downtown Riyadh. It's so Riyadh's so big. Yeah. Um, Laysan Valley is kind of one of the cooler areas. That's set to open in 2025. And the press release noted that Hilton's growth is continuing in secondary cities, um, and they're going to be going with Abha Hilton, the Point Residences, and Canopy by Hilton, the Point, which will be opening in 2026. So. Yeah, more offerings for tourists and business travelers and visitors to Saudi Arabia from Hilton, which is a, I think a, a great brand. So, I, I agree. I mean, that's a, that's spot on. I mean, the, the latest hotel signings for Saudi Arabia include a, you know top of the line Waldorf Astoria, Waldorf Astoria, but it also includes you know, Double Trees and Hamptons, and Saudi Arabia needs you know more of those mid level opportunities and options. The other thing I loved about this was that um, it's the country, it's the company's uh, largest pipeline market in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. I mean, for the longest time, you know, people say, well, why don't you invest in Saudi Arabia? And from a multinational corporation, you know, Saudi Arabia was always looked at as, you know, you know, what are the margin, what's the margin return compared to the rest of the globe? And a lot of times, it wasn't sufficient to come to Saudi Arabia. And so it's it's neat that, you know, as as Hilton looks at its whole Europe, Middle East, Africa markets, that, you know, Saudi Arabia is considered a place where you want to invest because the margins are sufficient and attractive enough. I mean, that says a lot. That's very encouraging. The Double Tree by Hilton in Riyadh, KAFD, I've stayed there a few times, is really, it's pretty much brand new. It's really nice, really cool. And it's right outside CAF, so you can get down into sort of Al-Olia Street easily. Yeah. It's a good good hotel and cool location. Yellow number two, the Saudi Data and Artificial Intelligence Authority, in cooperation with Google Cloud, continues to train 1,000 women representing 28 countries in the fields of data and AI, according to a report by the SPA. The training initiative is part of the first phase of the, quote, Elevate program, end quote, 
the world's first of its kind, which will last for five years to skillfully train over 25,000 women from various nations in advanced technical domains. Commencing in early May 2023, the first phase of the Elevate program extends over nearly four months, during which trainees go through four different online training levels. Uh, this is a good one. And we both like this one when we were swapping yellow options. Um, I, I like it. I just love it when the U.S. corporate does good. And this is this is something, I mean, the, the numbers are really impressive, 25,000 over five years. But just this first first group going through, um, you know, the number of specialists in the technology field during the first phase, re first phase reached 300 trainees, while non-specialists numbered around 700. You know, representatives from various countries, obviously, so obviously Saudi, but all the way from UAE, the GCC states, but to Egypt, Jordan, Brazil, Gambia, Vietnam, Uganda, Lebanon, uh, Lesotho, Iraq, Tunisia, Moldova, Uzbekistan, Liberia. I mean, again, not only is it, it you know, it, it, good good on Google, um, but also, you know, this terrific to see this sort of gathering place for the world in terms of young women trying to upskill in Saudi Arabia. That's a great, that's a great precedent. And good on domain name offer organizations for opening up a Saudi-based.ai domain name. That's just a little thing that can help the kingdom develop in its AI space, which is really competitive now. It's really driving VC all over the world. So that's just another little thing here that's happened. And this is this is cool. I mean, this is a this is a you're right. We both sort of share this as hey, this is actually kind of significant. There are a lot of reports that are of this level that people just miss. And so anyway. The benefits and wonder of Yella, Richard. So we're we're just plumping for Google today. We we both use its AI Bard, mm -hmm. and now they're upskilling uh, women in in Saudi Arabia. Well done, Google. We'll call this the Google episode. Um, or Alphabet, yeah. <laughs> number three, Saudi Arabia has appointed its first ambassador to the to the to the Palestinians in a move that comes amid amid talks with the United States over a possible deal to normalize relations between the Gulf Kingdom and Israel. In a show of support to Palestinians, Saudi Arabia named its ambassador to Jordan, Naif bin Bandar al-Suderi, as, quote, non-resident ambassador to the state of Palestine and consul general in Jerusalem, unquote. The Saudi envoy also called the appointment, uh, quote, an important step, unquote, which underscores the desire of King Salman and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to, quote, strengthen relations with the brothers of the state of Palestine and give it a formal boost in all areas. Unquote. Amazing. Amazing times. Little step forward. And my only comment to this is for everybody, if you happen to miss either of Richard's previous one big things two weeks ago and last week, part one and two, sort of unintentionally on the normalization discussion, which does dominate non-soccer related headlines when it comes to Saudi Arabia. It, <laughs> both of those are are salient and and really well done but also enormously popular from our listeners so we i recommend them to people because they other people seem to really like them and that they're just very good segments so that's my only comment on this and this is i think this is kind of a big deal i i do i do think i agree with you and and uh that shout outs appreciated i would i mean for both of us i think like you said the second one big thing on that topic was unintentional but we're sort of working through all this out loud Right. 
and trying to understand it, the rationale, the, the incentives, the motivations, all this sort of thing. So, and this is interesting because it kind of, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gesture, it's more than a gesture, but it's a step that I think signals two key parties. One, Israel is, as I said in my last one big thing, it was the first part one or part two. You know, one of the things that Bibi Netanyahu said after the signing of the Abraham Accords with UAE and Bahrain was essentially, we got something for nothing. You know, I think the term I used was, we didn't give away a span. Um, and we talked about it, in the biblical terms, a span is nine inches in terms of, of length. So, you know, he's saying we got something for nothing and we changed the concept. We changed it. It's not land for peace. It's peace for peace. So anyway, and at the same time, the Palestinians are very much feeling left out of this conversation. And this step sort of is a signal to both parties. So, you know, you know, one is to Israel is like, no, no, we take this very seriously. This is from the Saudis. This is, this is meaningful to us. Uh, we're not going to engage unless you're talking meaningfully about, about serious uh, changes of behavior and policy with regard to occupied territories. And two, um, you know, we, we're opening, we're making sure that the Palestinian voice uh, has a conduit and a representation. So anyway, it, like you say, it is an important step. Good one. Richard, unfortunately, we have teased a... Yes. Bit of a uh, another yellow <laughs> yes. ahead of time. GoDaddy, the web hosting provider, has announced the launch of its .ai domain extension in Saudi Arabia. The platform said the .ai extension, which stands for artificial intelligence, duh, opens up a world of opportunities for individuals, developers, startups, and research institutions aligning with the kingdom's AI strategy and growth in the field of artificial artificial intelligence. GoDaddy added that the .ai domain will create numerous advantages for small businesses across various sectors. It explained that, quote, by associating with artificial intelligence, these domains become powerful branding tools, projecting innovation and technological expertise to customers and stakeholders alike, end quote. Yes, you did tease it in a good way. So, I mean, and, and your comments and the other yellow are, are, are really good. Um, included in this article and GoDaddy's sort of uh, commentary on this was that artificial intelligence is set to contribute $135 billion to Saudi Arabia's economy. And we'll see AI's contribution to GDP rise to 12.4% by 2030, making it the biggest beneficiary of AI in the Middle East. And it's funny how these things go in, in, in cycles and waves. We, this, we had two AI-related Yellas, we could have had all six. I mean, because there was lots of stuff on AI this just in this past week, uh, you know, coming over the transom about all the things that are going on in Saudi Arabia with vis a vis AI. Um, number five, um, Cristiano Ronaldo has yet again left the competition behind as the five time Ballon d'Or winner was named Instagram's top earner for the third year in a row. Ronaldo, who in July was ranked as the world's highest paid athlete by Forbes for the first time since 2017 following his move to Saudi Arabia, has now topped the 2023 Instagram rich list, a global marker of online influence. The Portugal forward brings in a massive $3.23 million 
per Instagram post, according to Hopper HQ, as he nears 600 million followers on the social media platform. To a little surprise, Ronaldo's closest rival on this is Lionel Messi, uh, the Argentina World Cup winner, attracting almost $2.6 million for each post. I know this is not how it works, but if I were to get paid $3.23 million per Instagram post, people would be getting spammed all day, every day with every little <laughs> thing that I was doing. And, um, you know, th- what's also interesting and kind of related to this story is another story came out pointing out that Lionel Messi chose the U.S. Soccer League MLS over Saudi Arabia, but had a you know serious look at both leagues. He still is a paid tourism ambassador for Visit Saudi. Twenty five so million cool. a year. Twenty five million a year. So it's kind of cool. He actually gets the benefits of both. He still gets the Saudi money to promote Saudi Arabia as an emerging tourism destination. And I will note that he has visited Saudi Arabia several times over the past few years. And he does these photo shoots, which are so cool. Actually, he did one, I believe, in Daria or near Daria, and he did one in Al Ula. If I may, I may be off on those. I'm sure people will let me know, but those photo shoots are cool and they're using advertisements all over the world for visiting Saudi Arabia. So this is cool. And this is, this is all part of Saudi Arabia's sort of soft power approach to updating people's perceptions of it as it changes. So it's pretty yeah. cool. And I will take half that and I'll post anything <laughs> you want from my Instagram <laughs> handle at Lucian Ziegler. <laughs> the, um, it isn't, you know, you you actually sort of reference this. We've talked, we talk about Saudi football. We have to come back to it because their season has started and and they've, you know, they've gotten some more transfers. Um, and apropos to this, Neymar, who just signed with Halal, um, reportedly he's getting paid uh, 430 pounds, 430,000 pounds. I take that, 430,000 pounds for every post on his Instagram that promotes Saudi Arabia. And I guess the point, and he's got 62 million, 62.5 million followers on, on, on Twitter and 212 million followers on Instagram. So as you say, soft power, that's part of it. You know, you pay Ronaldo all this money, um, but you're getting, you know, unparalleled, really, clearly unparalleled, the number one, you know, draft for uh, social media influencing. Uh, so it's all it's all part of their plan. And it works very well. A lot of people don't aren't reached as effectively or at all by traditional media sources. This is the only this is one of the only games in town now if you really want to reach the most amount of people quickly and impactfully in an intimate way on their phone from somebody they follow and trust. It's a cool space kind of. So and it's interesting to see Saudi Arabia ahead of it. Um, and have been for the past few years. So yellow number six, Mr. Wilson, Yeah. Saudi Arabia passes law require, requiring USB-C charging on new iPhones, Androids, and laptops. All smartphones sold after January 1st, 2025, and all laptops sold after April 1st, 2026 in Saudi Arabia must have a USB-C port similar to the EU's mandate. The law comes from the Saudi Standards Meteorology and Quality Organization and the Communications Space and Technology Commission. Other hardware that must have a USB-C port includes keyboards, headphones, speakers, and routers. The law is an attempt to decrease e-waste 
and improve user experience while also saving customers an estimated 170 million real a year, which is approximately $45 million. Um, yeah, I love this. So what does, what does the European Union, California, and Saudi Arabia have in common? USB-C. This law. <laughs> this law. I, I love it because, number one, I was so irritated when Apple introduced that whatever. I thought that was like gratuitous. I mean, come on, guys. You know, it's just another, you know, it's another bit of money. But also, clearly, it adds to the waste and, you know, you know, sort of redundancy. Not the redundancy, but the, you know, unnecessary detritus of modern technology that we have to carry around. Um, and I love this, that, you know, the, the, that Saudi Arabia is jumping on board this clear and easy fix of a, just a wasteful habit and a wasteful, you know, product. Uh, and so that's, I'm glad we, you know, this was, this was a good one to include. Good for you, Saudi Arabia. Like I said, you know, being progressive like the EU and California. USB-C is awesome. And yes. to my left is a drawer full of old cords that I am eventually just going to dump into a landfill and it will they will rot there forever ever. There's not really a good recycling situation for stuff like that. And if, you know, my Mac Pro, my extra screen and my phone all run on USB-C, USB-C 3. Your and Mac runs. Is, your Mac runs on the USB C three. US USB C. USB C. Yeah. <laughs> um, my MacBook Pro. That's the charging function yeah. for it. And oh, so it's and you know those are much faster than USB. Yeah. I'm just like all about this, and this is just another story that you're just not going to hear about in the Washington Post, or the New York Times, and if you're a casual observer of Saudi Arabia, you probably miss this as well. This is really cool. And this is the type of thing you will benefit from when you visit and it'll just be like awesome. And all hotels will have the USB-C port, charge quickly, less waste, saving money. Just, you know, it's cool. So my bag of cables is to my right and it's a big gallon bag with smaller cord bags of, you know, that is I literally have labeled on it USB, USB-C, Apple, specialty cables, blah, 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 blah. You know, See, and it's it's just unnecessary. Should it be a big bag of USB-C? It should be. And also, you are probably more organized than 99% of all people on Earth because you have separate <laughs> organizational compartments for these cords. <laughs> I just have one big entangled brick <laughs> of multicolored metal and plastic. <laughs> Unrecyclable, unusable, useless. <laughs> And I also don't have the chutzpah to throw it out, so we are on a we're at a standoff here, and this is going. <laughs> this is not a standoff. You're losing terribly. I'm, well, I I guess I'm just adding to it, and it's just over there. Um, but yes, and you know, also if this is the case, USB-C is just it. You don't have to have a new cord with everything you buy. Truly, it's not just some new thing. Show you get something, and it's like, oh, you just plug it in with something else. A cord you already have. And then the quality of these cords will go up. You'll have fewer yes. imitations from whatever province in China sold on AliExpress. And it's just like, this doesn't work. We keep buying. We, we keep, keep buying because it's yeah. expensive. <laughs> yeah. We are so Americans. Just I'm speaking on behalf of Americans as an American. So wasteful. It's unbelievable. So, it's true. Yeah. What it's a true. nice note to end. Yes, exactly. Episode 99 on. Mr. Richard <laughs> Wilson, I will see you 
on the yes. lake tomorrow, perhaps I'm, wearing pink. We'll see, but I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'll show up with my 24 Kirkland golf balls and, and I'll, I'll leave, I'll leave with fewer. <laughs> <laughs> That's the 24 pack you were talking about. There Dang. you go. <laughs> <laughs> see you tomorrow. And uh, thanks. Thanks, man. Great one.